All right, so if you have your Bibles, open them up, and there's a notes page today, as promised. We're going full-on application-driven sermon. And you guys are like, no, I don't believe you can. Uh, seriously, so as promised. So uh, we're talking about creating culture in your family. Last week we talked about creating culture in the church, uh, kind of the idea of starting Antioch. One of the beautiful things about a church plant is you really get to um, begin anew. And begin anew doesn't mean we create the rules or we create the, the mission. What it means is we go back to the New Testament that codifies what the mission of the church is supposed to be. And then we're able to reevaluate that and contextualize it into our context, our culture, uh, where we live. And so it's kind of a fun exercise. And we, that's one of the reasons we took the name Antioch, because the first church that you really see recontextualizing the gospel is the church at Antioch in the New Testament. So we, we have a lot of fun and have had a lot of fun as elders really wrestling with deep questions. What is this going to look like? What is baptism going to look like? What, what are other things going to look like in light of the New Testament, not just the way we've always done it or the way we like it, but, but really going back to the New Testament and saying, what does New Testament Christianity look like uh, enculturated in today's uh, culture with today's language? And so it's a fun thing that way. And as families, there's kind of a similar thing that we get to do. So today we're talking about creating culture in your family. And the first thing here, the first point, is to take responsibility for creating culture in your family. So just like a church planter has the, the, the joy of being, being able to kind of recontextualize and reimagine in some sense what the gospel looks like in culture, as parents uh, or a parent, you have the opportunity, no matter what came before you, to stop and recontextualize and reevaluate and reimagine what the gospel can look like in your family culture. And the first aspect of that, if you're going to engage that, is to take the ownership, to take responsibility for creating culture in your family. In Joshua, you see Joshua basically after kind of going in and taking over the land. And so he's been with his people. The Israelites have been together. And they've, they've essentially had this campaign. And they've now taken over the land. And they're all going to go to their own homes and begin to kind of live their lives. And Joshua says this fascinating thing to the people. He, he kind of says, you get to choose. But in uh, Joshua 24, 15, he says, but as for me and my household. So you get to choose what you're going to do in your households. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So as you go your own way, as you get to make your own decisions, as you're going to begin to imagine what life looks like for you, how you're going to spend your time, what you're going to do, what your priorities are, uh, there's a lot of things that can come up. There's a lot of uh, ways you can, you can think of that. But ultimately, Joshua is saying, for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. That's going to be the dominant mission. It's going to be kind of the marching orders. It's going to be the umbrella under which we live. And the idea here is that all of us as parents have the opportunity to take responsibility for creating culture. To say, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Now that shows up in two different ways. If you want, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. 
This shows up, I think, in two different ways. Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is a famous passage uh, for the, the Jewish folks. Um, this is the Shema. It's the heart of their educational system. It's also the heart of the creed. And so Jesus took a lot of uh, what he taught from this passage about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But this is kind of right after the Ten Commandments are restated, we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'll just go ahead and start reading from verse 1. It says this, These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. So hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. So you see the children and the grandchildren. So what we're talking about here is a culture and a legacy that will come by obeying the decrees. And so in verse 4, this is the beginning of the Shem. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, is one. Now love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be on, up upon your hearts. Impress them on, on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So let's back up just again. These commands that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. What the writer here is doing is saying, as you're discipling your children, as you're interacting with your children, as you're shaping and coaching your children, it's to be when you sit and when you walk, which are kind of boxing in two different aspects of active behavior, and when you sleep and when you wake up. So it's kind of what we get is the up and down limits and the, and the side to side, left and right limits. It's saying in all the spheres of life, you are to actively actively engage your kids on talking about how God and the love of the Lord and the obeying of his decrees um, fits in and relates to everything in life. Everything in life is a teachable moment. Everything in life is something that can be tied back to a question or a conversation about the goodness of God, what it means for God to be uh, high and exalted, what God's desires are for our life, all of this, everything in life can be brought back to that. So the first thing I see here is time. It's time. The writer here boxes out a lot of time for working with our families and in our homes and creating the culture that we would want. And so one of the questions I think we have to ask today in our culture is, am I in control and am I thinking about time? It's in some sense what the high ground used to be in the olden days when you'd go to war. You know, you, the first question is who's, who owns the high ground? Who owns the heights? Who occupies the heights? Because if you have the heights, you have control of everything else. And I think when it comes to kind of your family and your kids, the first question here is time. 
Who owns the time? Who controls the time? Who has the time? Because if you have the time, you in some sense have control of everything else. And that's an incredibly difficult question today because as a parent, you get spare change time, right? I mean, it's so hard to find the right kind of time. With your spouse, if you're going two different directions, it's almost like you're exhausted when you finally come together to sit down and to have that conversation. And so it's incredibly hard to think through, I think, in in today's culture, what are we going to do to control time? And the the idea comes back to responsibility. So if we're saying, I am taking responsibility for creating culture in my home, I'm take, it's my responsibility, and it's something that I want more than anything else, the next question is, I need to sit down then, and I need to labor over what time looks like within our schedule. If I'm not laboring over time, then I'm going to get what's left to me unguided, unthought through, unkind of mastered. Whereas if I sit down and I at least do the best, it might not be perfect, but I'm now in control of time. I can say to the best of my ability, prayerfully, humbly, actively, I've tried to engage the time and the schedule and the calendar in such a way that I am in control of it. I'm taking responsibility for it. This has been really hard for Tamara and I. We, we literally spent a whole week planning out the next six months because my calendar and her calendar and then the family calendar and the kids' calendar and the church calendar. But what we realize is the more we talk through it, the more we can group things, the more we can box out time, the more we can prioritize time, and the more we can kind of get ahead of it because time is in- incredibly crucial if you're going to create a culture in your home. The second part of this is cultural influence. So take responsibility for creating culture, which involves time, and secondly, cultural influence. Second, you could could say cultural influence another way by um, just the word influence or shaping influence. We're clay. We all kind of know this deep down. Uh, Peer pressure works marvels. God is a potter who works on us as if we're clay. We're moldable. We're bendable, we're pliable, uh, we, we go with the herd, we're herd creatures. We know that, we get into a crowd and we kind of just begin to take on the vibe of the crowd and we begin to go the way of the crowd. We all know that we can have a friend that talks a certain way and, and you give us a couple months and all of a sudden we're talking with a southern accent and people are looking at us like, what, what, you, what really? <laughs> like, you've never set foot in the south. But we kind of just take these things on by osmosis. And what we really have to realize is that we're impressionable. So coming back to Deuteronomy here, it says this. Impress these laws, these commands, um, truth. Impress this on your children. Talk means um, explain and argue and persuade and give answers and, and entertain the conversation. Talk about these things when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. So the idea here is we have to ask ourselves in, in a, a world where we're moldable, what is the dominant molding influence? What is the dominant molding or shaping influence? 
And I think this is a real hard question for us to entertain because in a media age, we're so bombarded with culture everywhere we turn that for a parent or a husband or a wife to look at life and say, can I really say, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord, meaning that the dominant cultural influence in our life um, is the kingdom. It's an incredibly difficult question to ask. You understand what I'm saying? It's incredibly difficult. Paul says this in Colossians 2.8. Actually, let's just turn there. Turn to Colossians in the New Testament. little small book uh, after Philippians. Colossians chapter 2. We'll start in verse 6. Paul says this, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And then in verse 8 it says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. See to it that nobody takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Here's where we go wrong with this. We think that if someone's going to take us captive by hollow and deceptive philosophy, it's going to be somebody showing up wearing a sign that says, I'm here to persuade you to a way of thinking that's different than what you ascribe to, and and we can go, oh, I'm not going to let that person talk to me. Look, that's the bad guy. And, and he is set out and, and bent on persuading me to the dark side. See, he's got the sign right on his chest. I'm smarter than this. I'm not going to listen to that person. We, we think that that's the way it would look. Like, I'm not going to be taken captive. You know, I, I, I'm not going to, you know, stranger danger. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to let someone come in and, and take me captive. But that's why, but the funny, I mean, last week I read a, a whole thing from the 1950s. Anyone remember that? Was it, what was it? I don't understand the laughing. Why the laugh? All right. I'm just going to ignore that. Um, you guys remember that? The whole paragraph from the 1950s? There's somebody else. Anyone else think that was fascinating? Because what's amazing is that consumerism, was an intentional philosophy of shaping American economic thinking and living. Okay? And the reason that I brought that up was because I wanted to to articulate and to demonstrate that these things are incredibly subtle. I mean, we we don't read that there was an intentional agenda to create a consumeristic culture. We don't read that and think about it philosophically. We sit in front of the TV and watch all the Big Mac commercials and the clothing commercials and everything else. And we get online and see all the ads and we go to the shopping mall and we're bombarded with the fashion and the style that we need to buy. And we've we got the credit cards that, you know, no interest for six months. And we get, we get caught up in this and we don't realize that we've been taken captive by a way of thinking and living that's intentional but we didn't realize it. It's subtle when it hits us. Does that make sense? One of the things we have to realize if we're going to create culture in our home, 
is that the things that are actually a philosophy and a way of living that are different than the kingdom, those things don't show up like a scary stranger that's going to kind of take you captive and kidnap you. Those things show up in the day-to-day living, and they show up in, in subtle little ways, and they begin to compete for our hearts. They compete for what, what Jonathan Edwards would have called our affections. And slowly and subtly, we, we get led astray because we want things. And we get distracted. Everyone who's a parent knows the power of distraction. I mean, you want to get away uh, with the babysitter watching the kid without the kid screaming or drop the kid off at the nursery. You don't try and talk to the two-year-old about how logical it is that they not cry, right? You, you find a toy and you go, you know, you just, <laughs> look at this red fire engine, you know, and the kid's eyes get bigger. And then you back out or you put on Dora, you know, on the movie. And Dora starts talking Spanish and there's Swiper and, and all of a sudden your kid is zoned in and then, and then you run out the door, right? The power of distraction is unbelievably potent. Um, the world is unbelievably potent in its ability to distract us from the values that we would ascribe to or say we want to ascribe to in terms of kingdom values. And so time matters. What is pushing on or against us matters. Asking the question of who your kids are spending their time with matters. Asking the question, who you as parents are spending your time with matters. What TV shows you're watching matters. What you just visually let around matter. I mean, it matters. It matters. C.S. Lewis, we're, uh, we're going through the Chronicles of Narnia right now. I'm reading, reading the Chronicles of Narnia to the kids a chapter a night. And we're in The Magician's Nephew. And and the magician's nephew, uh, Uncle Andrew, is just this, this bad example of a human being. You know, the, the kind of um, wannabe magician, Uncle Andrew, that gets from these other worlds. You have to read the book. Uh, Uncle Andrew's this lousy human being. But there's this fascinating phrase. C.S. Lewis teaches theology better uh, through kids' books than most theologians do in theology books. Just like Creed used to do through their music. Just kidding. I, won't do this. <laughs> I always laugh. When, anyways, um, so C.S. Lewis writing kids' books, right? Listen to what he says, and it's kind of in reference to Uncle Andrew. Now, the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. Now, the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. If we go into the world without any filters and without any intelligence and without any responsibility just saying, come what may, the problem is, is uh, I don't know, there's a, come what will, come what is, it's going to come. Something about is and shaping. I want to ask you this question because I think it's a pertinent question. If you desire, if your desire for the world is greater than the kingdom, 
you will not be able to create godly culture in your home, period. So where are you with that? If your desire as a spouse or as a parent, and even if you're getting ready to be married and you're single, if your desire is for the world more than the kingdom, you will be unable to create this culture in your home. It might just be a, a fun longing, a nice fancy, a great idea, something that you wish would happen. But if your heart really is going here, really wants this, then that's what you're going to get. Does that make sense? Um, the questions I ask every morning, I started doing this about a decade ago. Every morning I wake, and it's, sometimes it's nauseatingly boring um, to my wife and to others. But I, I get up every morning, and, and it's the same prayer. God, I want to be in the right place at the right time. I'll do anything. It's full stop, period. So I get made fun of a lot. People come to me, and, well, what's your hobby? I don't really have any. Because God's never, in the last decade, he hasn't led me into a hobby. And so people are like, wow, you're not a lot of fun to hang out with, Ken. Like, yeah, I don't feel like I'm a lot of fun to hang out with, but you know what? I feel pretty good about my faithfulness. And I think that we sometimes frame our time and, and our investment into culture by saying, I'll take a little bit of this, a little bit of religion, a little bit of hobby, a little bit of fun, a little bit of leisure, a little bit of, you know, entertainment. And we go, you know, that looks pretty good. And it's, quasi, you know, and it's fairly Christian, too. I could be proud of that. I could, I could let other people look at that, and they would actually think maybe well of me. I don't think that's the right question, though. I think the right question is, if, if me and my household, if we're going to serve the Lord, then every day it's hands out saying, God, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to be? When do you want me to be there? I'll do anything, full stop. And if he leads me into a hobby, great. I'll waste thousands of dollars a year on that hobby in time and energy and everything else. If he leads me into more service or more nurture of my wife or more nurture of my kids or more study of his word or more time in solitude just trying to hear or be with God in prayer, totally different kind of conversation than our typical prayer. If that's where he leads me, then great. A hobby's not going to define me. I want to be defined by my faithfulness and my responsibility in terms of my household and how we're going to serve the Lord. So the first thing about creating culture, and that doesn't mean if you have a hobby, there's anything wrong with you. It means I'm not supposed to have a hobby right now. And it means, means, yeah, I am boring. Anyways, um, take responsibility for creating culture. Take responsibility for creating culture. The second one, if you want to create culture, create shared memories. Create shared memories. There's something unbelievable about commemorating and marking and creating memories and, and having those touchstones. Exodus 12, 14 says this. This is the day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. God commanded these holidays in the Passover to be set up as a reminder of his faithfulness and that that would be 
in your life on an ongoing basis so that there would be this undercurrent, this theme running through your life of one, God's faithfulness, two, you and your family celebrating God's faithfulness, and it creates this unbelievable um, kind of legacy, family legacy and culture. We celebrate the goodness of God. We do it together. I, I have memories of my mom. I have memories, memories of my dad. I have, I have memories of calling my family to the table to celebrate and, and to remember the Lord's goodness. And as we do that on this regular basis, this unbelievable tradition comes about. Tradition and rituals, incredibly powerful. We miss this one, by the way, that... One of the most dominant memories your kids can have and, and possibly will have is going to church every Sunday. How many of you grew up going to church every Sunday? You want to know one of the main reasons those of you who raised your hand are sitting here today are sitting here today? Is because there was a tradition and a culture and a ritual created that over time you began to, to, to value and appreciate and embrace. And, and over time you begin to realize it doesn't matter if it's fun. It doesn't matter if it wows me. It doesn't matter if it's exciting. I do this because this is, this is a part of, of my culture. I, I, I would miss it if it wasn't there. It matters to me. And I think one of the things we make the mistake of doing as parents is we want our kids to be happy at church so much that we never teach them that they do it whether they're happy or not. I don't care if you like your class this year or, or this week. We, we need to go. Why? Because that's what we do. That's where God wants us. With the family of believers. And it's not all about us. It's about being with those people. And even if I don't like it, the fact that I'm there in attendance matters to somebody else and it matters to God. I mean, the, the, I, I had a college group um, 15 years ago and it was these Biola students. And these Biola students got chapel three days a week. And so if you're a college student, you're getting chapel three days a week from some of the best speakers in the country. What do you not want to do on Sunday? Go to church, right? One, the speakers aren't going to measure up. Um, and two, you're like, I'm full. And so I used to talk to these Biola kids, and I'm like, it's not about you. What about these high school kids that are in public high school every day being shaped by the world and being given these, these, these weird ideas about to become somebody, they have to define themselves not by virtue, but some kind of celebrity quality that they have to manufacture or go perform or go do. And they're, they're in this culture every day, these students, and they're getting bombarded, and, and they have all this kind of stuff going on, and there is nobody in this church ahead of them for them to look at as a positive role model or example. There's no one for them to go, you know what, I have all these different options, but that dude's cool. And he's a Christian, and he's solid. I actually look up to him. I want to be like him. And so these, these kids, these college kids, they were completely absent from the church. I'm like, don't you realize your opportunity and your responsibility to be in the church, not just for yourself, but because that's a part of a healthy community and a culture, and you get to be a part of that. And instead of going on missions trips through your college, which is great and all, 
go on a mission trip through your church. And they're like, why? Well, because there's young people that get to see you and look up to you. And there's the little old lady that's going to pray for you while you're on that mission trip. And there's the church that gets to send you. And when you go through college, you just check a checkbox and sign up and you go. And it's not bad. But God created this culture, this family of his believers. And one of the dominant memories as parents that we can create for our kids is slowly helping our children um, grow into this beautiful institution that goes back thousands of years and say, this is what we do. And it doesn't always have to be perfect. And we don't always have to feel like it. But we create a memory. It's incredibly important. Joshua, same thing, uh, creating touchstones. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day, Joshua 4.9. What spiritual memories are you going to create that 20, 30, 40 years from now, someone could say, and it's there to this day? There's nothing more powerful you could do to create a culture than to create a memory or a touchstone or a ritual or an actual commemorative thing that someday people could look back at and point to and say, and it's there to this day. What that does to undergird the spiritual legacy in your home, the culture in your home, would be unbelievable. And so if we're taking responsibility for creating a spiritual culture in our home, one of the things we want to do is say, what can we create, what tradition, what ritual, what, what tribute to the goodness of God that will last? If we're intentional, we'll do it. One of the things we begin to realize is if we get distracted and our heart gets kind of enamored with this world, we begin to rob God of his worship and his glory. And this is what Romans begins with. Paul basically saying this is the heart of all turning away. And then he spends the next seven chapters talking about how God chooses and interacts and comes back in to, to call out for himself a, a family that will honor him and that he will be able to have grace on. But the beginning of this says this, for all they, although they knew God, this is chapter 1, verse 21, Romans 1, 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like moral, mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. And therefore God gave them over. You see that we always have this choice to follow God or to turn away from God. And one of the first signs of turning away from God can be measured in our worship. And when I say worship, I don't mean singing alone. I mean the desire to manifest your gratitude or to seek out God as being the answer to your problems, to make Him the highest, most desirable thing in your life. Worship comes from the old Anglo-Saxon word worth-ship, worth, worthy of being um, attributed worth to, worth-ship, right? God is, is worthy of being in this spot. 
And when we look to him, when we call out to him, when we're grateful to him, when we honor him and give thanks to him, that's worship. And that, that follows not just into our emotions, but our actions as well. And the first sign of us turning away from this desire to the desire over here is we begin to take this for granted. We begin to make this common. We begin to make this, put another way, smaller. And so what I want to do with my kids is I want to create memories. I want to create memories that tattoo to their soul the bigness of God, the stability of their family, the strength of my marriage to my wife. I want to create memories that will make it... Um, here's another C.S. Lewis illusion. Uh, Prince Caspian. Anyone ever read Prince Caspian? Nice. They're, the, the children end up in this underworld, you know, where the witch is trying to uh, throw a bunch of things on a fire and it begins to fill the room with this magical smoke. And she's trying to make them forget Narnia, which, was, which is above ground, you know, this beautiful magical place uh, with talking beasts and walking trees. Um, in divine waters, you know, that's the phrase, right? And she's trying to make them forget it. Like, no, that was just a dream. That was a childish fancy. That's not really true. And, and she's playing this harp the whole time and talking very soothely. And, and the kids are beginning to go, yeah, that must have been a dream. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, uh, one of them's like, you know, remembers Aslan's voice and says, that wasn't a dream. And then he begins to wake himself up gradually, and, you know, and, and he begins to go, no, that wasn't a dream. No, that wasn't a dream. And the idea is I want to tattoo into my kids the concept of the kingdom and the nearness of heaven to such a high degree that when they are being distracted by the world someday, deep in their soul, they're like, no, I remember no, there's something else here that's bigger. There's something else here that's stronger. There's something else here more worthy of, of my allegiance than this. The, there's something going on, and, and I want them to be able to call that back and then to be able to pursue God. There are 12, this is, I made this up. So someone, I, I said this a couple weeks ago, and someone was like, is there a study on that? I'm like, no, nah, I made it up. But there's I think there's 12 dominant memories that you carry from childhood into adulthood. 12 dominant shaping memories. I think, I made this up too, I think six of them are completely random. The car crash, uh, the death in the family, the dog, I don't know, I mean, that would have been gruesome. Um, <laughs> uh, sorry. Um, you know, you know what I mean? The dominant memory you can't control. So I think six of them are, are things that you can't control. I think the other, the other six, as a parent, I think the other six are fair game for me to have some measure of, of influence into. Now what does that look like? If I'm going to intentionally create a memory in my kids that they'll have into adulthood... That, that are going to be on par with the six greatest random things that happen in their life. Those six memories I want to create have to be deepened over time. The way you do this with kids, tradition and routine, 
um, you do the same thing the same way over and over and over and over again. Whether it's a Christmas tradition, whether it's how you tuck your kids in, whether it's the affirmation you say to them that's designed to take their little personality and teach them one thing about how unique or special they are or your love for them, you do it over and over and over and over again. We, we really wanted to create a dominant memory for our kids with a vacation, so we broke the piggy bank, literally, and took them to Disneyland. Now, this doesn't sound very spiritual. It is. Um, we took them to Disneyland at this right age, and we, we gave them this memory, and we took a whole bunch of pictures, and we came back, and we had the kids pick out which pictures from Disneyland they liked the most. So not the ones Tam and I liked the most to decorate the house to impress our friends, but the ones the kids liked the most. There was something in that picture about them with dad or them with mom or their smile that really touches something in them. We had them pick the pictures, and we put those pictures all over the house and in their bedrooms because I want them to see that look on their face or that relationship with mom or dad. I want them to see that all the time for the next 10 years. Because here's the spiritual part. Because it's not about Disneyland. It's about a, an image or a picture or an idea that I'm trying to deepen or, or cultivate or bring about so that that is there. And that when they're 40 years old, they still remember my smile, even if I'm gone. And that idea remains. Does that make sense? What are the six dominant memories you want to create for your kids what are the pictures you want in their heads? What are the traditions that you want to create that are going to, they're going to last and exist, uh, not only to your kids, but to your grandkids? The next one here, um, so take responsibility. Create shared memories. Create shared values. Create shared values. Back to Deuteronomy, remember what it said after it talked about the time and the cultural shaping. It says, tie these things as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So tie them as symbols on your hand. Literally tie a rope around your hand as a reminder about the priorities and the values that God has for us in the kingdom. That you, that you, you know what I'm talking about, tying a rope around your finger? The, I see it and I'm remembering it all the time. You do this by binding it on your forehead so that it's just always in front of you, everywhere you see, that's the filter. This is the symbol that goes on. Later on, the Pharisees would put little scriptures in little boxes and actually tie them to their foreheads to live this out. Write them on the door frames of your houses so that every time you go out, every time you come in, you're reminding, reminded of these laws and then on your gates. Look at Deuteronomy 17, if you will. It's a fascinating verse. Deuteronomy 17 has to do with when the Israelites are going to finally take a king, what that king is supposed to live like and do. And it talks about don't take many horses, don't multiply your money. Basically, uh, beginning in, in Deuteronomy 17, 14, he's saying, your position as king is to serve, not to be served. Your position as king, as the leader, is to is to serve, not to be served. That's what those verses have to do. And then it comes to verse 18, and it says this. Now when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the priests who are the Levites. It is to be with him and he is to read it 
all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and all these decrees and not consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law to the right or to the left. And then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. By the way, you know, we talk a lot about justice. When you read the Bible, what does it say right here? If you read the Bible daily, one of the things you're going to get from it is that you're not to consider yourself better than your brothers or your sisters. Equity and fairness in all things. But the, the big idea here, which is fascinating to me, is this accomplishes a couple things. One, it shows that the king is literate. How can he know the law if he's not literate? He can be taken advantage of, be led astray if he's not literate. So he takes uh, a, a copy and then writes for himself a copy, demonstrating his ability to write and then also demonstrating that by the time he takes the throne, he knows all of the commands of God. He's not going in with any ignorance. And then when he becomes king, every day he's supposed to pour over these things. And so, what does that mean for me as a dad? Have you ever thought about that? I read the Bible not because I was taught you're supposed to have a quiet time. I read the Bible because I'm like, the chief dude in, in the system was supposed to read it every day. And if he was supposed to read it every day so that he would have wisdom and be able to govern rightly, then I want to attain to that standard too. I want to be able to, whether it's the church or whether it's my family, I want to have the wisdom and the knowledge and the ability and the discernment to know how to judge and to lead and to influence and to shape. And so I have a quiet time and I read my Bible, not because it's a religious discipline or duty, but because I look at this and I'm like, there's nothing higher in terms of what will inform me or lead me. And so in this, I get this idea that Knowing these decrees are huge. Knowing these decrees are huge. Now, when you have little kids, they're not going to write out the full copy of the law. They're not even going to be able to comprehend the majority of the law. So as a parent, what are you supposed to do? So we boiled it down to their level for them. We created three Rules. So we have three rules in our family. And what we did is we crafted these so that we th- thought they could understand it at a very young age and that they encapsulated the heart of what God wants uh, in the gospel. And so it's don't lie, which has to do with integrity. Rule number one, don't lie. Our kids will not lie. And that means white lies, half-truths, withholding truth. We teach our kids, do not, they know, do not, it's the only time they're ever really going to get in trouble. Everyone makes mistakes. Everyone screws up. That's okay. But don't lie. Integrity. Second thing, be responsible. Be responsible, which has to do with character. And it's broad and wide. And we get to teach them every day what responsibility looks like. And the third one is it's better to give than receive, which has to do with generousness and charity and ultimately someday justice. And so do not lie. Be responsible. It's better to give than receive. But we reinforce these over and over and over so that that becomes like a memory, something that's deeply ingrained and they're able to get it. Now, when you get kids that are closer to high school, that was the age where they became accountable to the law, the full law in Jewish society. 
I think if you're a parent of a high school student, you then transition and it becomes about affirmation and empowerment and helping them understand the fullness of the law. But before that, we boil it down. Why? Because we're not supposed to exasperate our children. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Training and instruction of the Lord and exasperation are on a teeter-totter. There's a balance that has to be struck between it. You ever get that Safeway cart? Never happens at Costco for some reason, but at Safeway it does, the bad wheel. You know what I'm talking about? And if you go too fast, the bad wheel spaz out and it locks up. And if, and if you go, you have to find the right speed for the, the wheel to roll. Being a parent is a lot like the same thing. If you try to do too much beyond what the, the child is innately capable of, you, you exasperate the situation. If you slow it down and deepen it down and clarify it down and work with that child at, at the level that they can handle it and you do it very hands-on and, and, and consistent, then you're able to bring it along and get it to roll. And so why do we boil it down to three rules? Because if we don't, there's a sense in which our kids won't get what we're trying to do. Now, we also have three vacation rules. We switch it up on vacation. Three vacation rules are don't whine, be happy, and be family. <clears throat> totally different vibe. And it's funny, Brandon Reynolds and I were talking. We were talking about the Antioch staff, and, and I said this to him. I feel like we got to switch from family rules to vacation rules. Like the staff, they just, they just need to, to be able to be happy and be family right now. You know, I mean, life is tough and all that. But those are two different sets of rules so that we can kind of give them that break. The three family rules. And then here's the last thing. Create a culture of teachability. Create a culture of teachability. The French writer Montaigne once said, a good marriage would be between a blind wife and a deaf husband. And I, I think to be human is to be dynamic. To be not human is to be static. And one of the great disappointments to me in life and, and, and even in uh, American Christianity is, is the gravitational pull towards static being and living. It's one of the reasons I love Kilms College. Because we would say to any 13-year-old or 18-year-old or whatever, what would we say to them? Stay in school. Get an education. Why would we say that to them? Because it's, it's the, the heart of what's valuable. It's the heart of humanity and dignity to grow and fulfill your potential. Why do we think that ends at age 18 or 21? I mean, has, has anyone given an argument for why being dynamic and being in a process of education is good up till 21, and then there's absolutely zero value beyond that, and we should just stop? I think it was one of the reasons why humility is so hard for, for us in America and as Christians. Because humility and teachability, it's the same thing. It's remaining open to being wrong, remaining open to learning, remaining open to growing. It's being small, knowing that in our smallness, we're able to take in and, and to change and to become. And in our home, we talk about teachability being the chief of all virtues. Why? Because if you have that one virtue, you can grow in all the others. But to whatever measure you might have the other virtues, if you're not teachable, you're going to stay static. 
And I think if you really want to create a culture in your home or your family or your marriage, you've got to be teachable and supple. You want to learn. You want to be educated. Uh, I had a class once by Jerry Root. Jerry Root came and talked on C.S. Lewis. You guys remember that a couple months ago? And he used to always use this Wordsworth poem. And he said, the child is the father. This is what Wordsworth said. The child is the father of the man. Right? Who we are as an adult comes out of our childhood. The child is the father of the man. Now, here's what I learned about that. Children don't make good parents. So you have to grow out of being a child. You, you know, Paul talks about when I was a child, I did childish things. When I became an adult, I put childish things away. So the idea here is as we're going to grow and as we're going to learn, as we're going to become, we want to become more and more wise, more and more mature, less and less immature, less and less foolish, more and more disciplined rather than more and more frivolous. And we want to grow into this maturity and, and to stay teachable. And as we do, we will make great parents because children, children don't make great parents. Children don't make great, great parents. Uh, there's a phrase in leadership uh, books and things that you'll come across that leaders are learners. Leaders are, find a leader and you'll find someone who's a learner. Leaders are learners. First Peter talks about this within regard to marriage. He talks about being submissive one to another. And then he goes on and talks about being submissive to elders and to come under authority. And you see this unbelievable thing of being teachable and being humble. And so what I would say is, whoever you are, study your children and your spouse. Study your children and your spouse. Be willing to learn. Be willing to, to find out. Be willing to explore. Be willing to see the nuance of their personality. One of the greatest things that happened to us was when we read a little book called Nurture by Nature. And it was basically talking about the Myers-Briggs with regard to kids. Because we had a kid with a personality we just couldn't figure out. When we read this thing, we're like, ah, all that stuff we didn't think was normal is normal. <laughs> we don't have to fix that stuff. We can affirm that stuff. That's, I mean, that's personality, not, you know. It was so freeing and so affirmational, and, so, and it made such a difference in our parenting. But study your kids. There's another book, uh, Five Love Languages for Kids. The one, Five Love Languages for Adults, is great for parents. There's a secular book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Read it. Okay, guys like their caves and women aren't allowed. Your marriage is going to be bad if, if the guy's trying to get in his cave and the woman's always chasing him in. Unbelievably helpful insight. Learn it. There's another one and I already forgot about, the, there, he gives two dominant analogies. I forgot the woman one. I remembered the man one, right? Um, <laughs> learn it. Um, husbands. Let me just talk to husbands and we'll close on this. Guys, uh, dads, if you can research fantasy football and if you can study and learn the ins and outs of poker in Texas Hold'em and if you can get better at your golf game, if you can excel at your job because you learn the ins and outs of your job, basically we have this unbelievable aptitude to put our minds on things and to excel at them. The problem a lot of times, dads, husbands, is that our family ends up behind us 
and it never shows up on our to-do list. And we can go years without our wife or our kids ever showing up on our to-do list. And if we can learn and excel at all these things, we have to say, I'm going to take responsibility for the culture in my home. I'm going to make sure this is on my to-do list. I'm going to study my kid. And just because I knew my kid two years ago doesn't mean I know him today. Just because I knew my wife two years ago doesn't mean I know her today. And I'm going to study this. Our families have to show up on our to-do list and don't ever let your wife see that to-do list. (laughs) She won't like it, okay? So don't, like, actually put it on a to-do list and let your wife see it. But what I'm saying is, put it on your to-do list. It says this in Matthew, Jesus is trying to encourage his disciples. He's sending them out and he's trying to say, look, God's got you. Your God has got you. Your father has got you. And he's trying to encourage me. He says this, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. God, your father, knows the number of hairs on your head. Do you know the hairs on the head of your kids? Dads. Husbands, do you know the number of hairs on the head of your wife? Study your family so that your wisdom and your excellence and your drive and your ingenuity, your innovation, your creativity, your heart can come and shape a culture in your home that you can be proud of from generation to generation. You've got a little card. If you've been following along, there's some stuff on the back that can take you through it. How's the world shaping your family more than the culture you desire to create? Um, Put a label on the stranger that's trying to take your family. Label it so that it's not subtle. What are five memories you want to create or deepen with your kids and your family? What are the three dominant values you would like to define or reinforce more clearly with your kids? And then lastly, what are the two two areas you need to reevaluate and three things you need to learn or study in order to create the culture you want in your home. Maybe you can take this home and just play with it. Um, but let's, let's be able to say like Joshua, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord.